Welcome to the OA Light a Candle pod meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Dan. <laughs> I don't think I need <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan, and I'm a recovering anorexic. Hi, Dan. Um, thank you, Lucy, for asking me to come and share tonight. I, um, I've shared here before, and I don't know why when I hear other people more than once, I love hearing it, but when I speak more than once at the same place, I think everybody's like, oh, God, him again. <laughs> but um, but anyway, um, so I'm really glad to be here, and I was sitting here, and happy birthday, um, you guys. I, I really got a lot out of both of your shares, and I, too, before LA, I, too, really believed that my food obsession and my eating disorder just was what it was and it's how it was. And I think I told myself that everybody felt the way I felt about food because it made it more palatable to think that I had to live that way for the rest of my life. And I really had kind of accepted that. And um, I came to OA in 1990. I was 20 years old and I was very much not ready for the program, but more than that, I wasn't ready to face what I was going to have to feel in abstinence. So I came to OA, I got the tool of writing down my food, which was like perfect for me as an anorexic. It was like, just write it down, put a big black line when you're done eating, and it was like this little control thing I had, and it worked for me. It helped me control my food more. So that was great. That's what I needed. So um, I left, and I I grew up in an alcoholic home, and I grew up in a home that was um, very, very much, for me, survival mode at all times. And um, my parents were both from also alcoholism, and they... Um, they were really abused as kids, really horribly abused. And my parents did not, for whatever reason, weren't able to find a path of healing. And so they joined a religious cult, and that was like their tool to get through it, and which meant they became abusers themselves. And that's what happens. And um, I don't, I, I do have love and compassion for my parents very much. And I also allow them to be accountable for their choices, which is they weren't able or didn't want to seek help. And they had to pass that on to their kids. And um, it was really quite a horror show <laughs> of an upbringing. And um, I do love the, par the parents I, that who I know they are underneath their diseases. Um, and I also have boundaries, and I don't take responsibility for their disease. And that's been a big shift in my recovery. I don't have to carry today what isn't mine. And I share that a lot because that's really important. I found that that carrying of something that isn't mine is at the core of my anorexia. 
so um, so I went away for five more years and I discovered the Los Angeles New Age spirituality scene and um, that was good for me as an anorexic. I, I needed to do a lot of work to, um, to, to kind of let go of the stuff I was raised with in terms of spirituality, if you want to call it that. Um, it wasn't spirituality, but it was a lot of horrible things, but um, the things that I had been taught. So I, those five years were a mixed bag. They were like me... Um, me getting further into my anorexia because my anorexia was always about spirituality. I thought I was being spiritual when I was starving myself. I really believed that I was, you know, really spiritual. And, um, you know, I was so spiritual I didn't need to eat. I was so spiritual I didn't need to have sex. I was so spiritual I didn't even need to shop. And, like, that was a, that took a lot of undoing and recovery. But anyway, so it was a mixed bag. It was me getting further into anorexia. But it was also me kind of finding a way to have some type of spirituality in my life. So when I turned, tw- I was around 25 years old, I was working in a restaurant and I had moved into a new apartment and I had a, a, um, a new neighbor say, I'm in OA. And I was like, I'm in OA too, I should go with you. And by this time, five years after my first experience with OA, I, um, I mean, the food obsession was literally just, it was to the point of like demonic possession. Like, so loud in my brain that I think it could have come out of my mouth, and I think it did it sometimes. It was just really, really, really intense. But every day I got up and I said, today's going to be the day I'm going to not be obsessed with food. Today's going to be the day, and I still didn't think I was an anorexic. I was about... Uh, about 40 pounds less than I am now, and I thought I was fine, and I just ate healthy like everybody else in L.A., and and um, I started going back to L.A., and I started identifying as a compulsive overeater, and I started losing more weight, and um, <clears throat> I picked a sponsor who was really sick, who matched my sickness we were really good for each other and um and they you know they they always used to say in a way that you start right where you're at and that's what happened to me i came to oa and i was the person i was in my sickness in oa and i didn't have to hide that i could just come and be who i was and i wasn't well i wasn't well and i didn't have to be well to come you know i didn't have to stay face i didn't have to look good um and I came, and, and the first thing I saw when I came back that first time, even though I was, still wasn't ready, still wasn't ready, I went to Serenity Sunday, and I saw people sharing. I just saw this thing in people's eyes that, like, blew my mind. It was like, for the first time in my life, people were telling the truth. They were not only telling the truth about food, which was enough to, like, blow me through the back of the room, but... They were telling the truth about their lives. Like, I heard truth for the first time. And it, like, it really hit me hard. And I kept coming back because I wanted that, whatever that thing was. And um, again, still not ready. Um, I was in OA for nine months, and I hit my bottom in OA, um, you know, with, with anorexia. Or my top, if you want to call it that. Because for me, anorexia is all about, like, floating up above the clouds, floating out of my human existence, floating out of my body, floating out of my desires, floating out of my shame. Um, Nine months in, I was 130 pounds, less than 130 pounds. I stopped weighing myself, and my hair was falling out. I truly still believed it's because I was eating too much food. And I remember looking in the mirror and, like, looking at the dark circles under my eyes and being like, but I eat so much. What's going on? Like, 
Like, I was that distorted. And, you know, I've heard compulsive readers talk about how, you know, they're 350 pounds and they have to get up and eat four chocolate bars at midnight. Like, I've heard those stories, you know. And, like, that's my version of that. Like, that distortion, that's my version. And what I always say to the anorexics I sponsor, one of the many things is that, you know, anorexia is a physical sensation. I didn't think I was fat. I knew I wasn't fat. And by the way, the gay male body type is not a real thin body. So it wasn't about looking good. Anorexia is not about looking good. It is about disappearing. And it is about not taking up space. And it is about not letting people see who I really am. And it's a survival technique. And I always share this whenever I share at a meeting that is not an A-B meeting, but... You know, and I shared it at this meeting on this podcast. You're going to hear it again because it's so important. Um, you know, my friend Marga, who talked about how she got into OA six months later, she had dropped, I think, 40 pounds in two months. I don't know, some crazy thing. And she was walking down the street and men were whistling at her and, and everybody could suddenly see her. And she talked about how she didn't have the spiritual muscle to handle that level of exposure. And when she told me that, I was like, oh, my God, it just hit me so hard that my anorexia is my barrier, too. My anorexia is my way. I hide from the world in smallness, just like Margot hid from the world in bigness. And letting myself get bigger and be seen, that is my recovery. And um, that's that's really important for me to say because that's what I found. You know, I um, will celebrated 24 years of abstinence in April and God willing I will have 25 years in this April and and um, you know my recovery has been this very slow step toward visibility and letting people see who I really am and um, every time I you know made my lunch smaller or, or limited my food. It was my very subtle but very clear way of apologizing for my existence. It was my way of saying, I'm sorry I'm here. I won't bother you. And I do not do that today. You know, I don't do that today. And I came to that, you know, I didn't get to be 25 years old with my hair falling out. I remember walking up a flight of stairs and, you know, being winded at the top of the flight of stairs and truly believing it's because I'd eaten too much three hours before. I couldn't get upstairs. One flight of stairs, I could barely get up. I didn't get to that place in my life at 25 years old because everything was okay inside. Then, you know, and when people used to talk about, um, I, I shared at the meeting a, a couple of months ago, and they handed me a piece of paper, and they said, here, share on this. And I was like, okay, quick, share on this, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting format, but um, what I, what the promise I got was, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it, and um I remember calling people. I called a woman once in program. I don't remember her name, and it's probably best I don't say her name because um, I'm being recorded, and I'm going to say something about her life. But um, she told me that something like, this is literally 25 years ago, something like she, had, she was a compulsive reader, and she talked about how she had maimed her body. She described her weight as maiming her body. She said, I maimed my body so that I didn't have to confront my father who wrote me out of his will after he molested me 
and he wrote me out of his will because I was dating a man of color. Like, like this, like, deep, deep, dark, horrible family story. And it, I was like, oh, hi, hello, you know, thanks for sharing that. And, <laughs> but deep down, I got this incredible sense of hope. You know, and even though that was so far from my own story, but the fact that she had a story and that she could share it with me and that, that she found in her experience of recovery that it was in healing those deeper issues that her eating disorder healed. That brought me so much hope because A, it meant I'm not some crazy food guy, which is what I thought before I got here. I really believed I was just some weird, crazy person who like obsessed about food all day long. And by the way, being an anorexic male, there's a lot of fodder for think, for feeling like a freak, you know? And I know that's just what society says, and I shouldn't listen to that, and I don't listen to it today. But early on, there was a lot of fodder for me to feel like I was just some weird, freaky person. And when I came to OA and started hearing other people's stories, it gave me so much hope that, A, I'm not crazy, and B, if I start to look at what's going on, maybe I can recover too. And that is exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. I, you know, right around the time my hair was falling out, I was working at a restaurant. People started coming up to me and saying, I think you're going to die, and I'll get that anorexic defensiveness. Like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. I'm not anorexic. And, um, you know, people at work, my sister saw me and started screaming the minute she saw me, and I got angry and defensive with her. But somehow, someway, I was in a way... I was working the steps. People were loving me anyway. And I just want to say as an aside, the greatest people I've ever met in my life were in OA. And this program really is my family. I just want to say that. Like, I was so loved and accepted back in the 90s, you know. This, like, you know, it wasn't back, you know, back before it was cool to be, you know, friendly with gay people. And, like, people just loved me no matter what. And that saved my effing life. I'm not going to swear on the recording. Um, but um, so I started working the steps, you know, and I was I was sick, 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 working the steps with my sick, sick, sick sponsor. And I was still getting better. I was still getting better. And nine months in, somehow, someway, it was like a miracle of recovery. And like my denial, just like, it was like, snap. And suddenly I just heard it. Like, I'm anor- I heard anorexia, and I heard not only anorexia, but I'm obsessed with food because of anorexia. I thought I was obsessed with food because I wanted to eat it, or because I was some weird version of compulsive controlling over, I don't know. I just heard anorexia. And all of a sudden I realized I was obsessed with food because I was starving. <laughs> I was going to die. So I just, honestly, it was like a miracle of recovery. And I believe it was those nine months, those calls. I was calling a lot. I was going to meetings. I was probably going to, I don't know, probably ten meetings a week, a couple times a week. I would go to two meetings a day. And I remember calling. This is like my big breakthrough story, and I share it all the time, but it's the truth of me calling Daryl, her saying, what's going on, and me like breaking down into like such sobs that my sides were hurting, and her asking me, why are you crying? And I said to her, I don't know why. I don't know why. And that really scared me, that sense of like this incredible emotion and me not understanding what it was really scared me. And all Daryl said was, well, we're going to find out why. We're going to find out why. And she said, there's a reason for your anorexia. You know, and that gave me so much hope. I was so far from understanding the depths of what those reasons were. I was probably 15 to 18 years away from really understanding, really, why I picked up 
the disappearing act of anorexia. But just that hope got me abstinent. And I gained 40 pounds probably in about, I don't know, probably two months. And, and I always say, you know, that's when the work started. And again, I'm a new guys, I'm a total broken record, but this is the stuff that really stays inside of me and sticks with me. They used to say, if you want to find out why you're eating or not eating or barfing or any of those combinations of those three things, stop doing those behaviors and you're going to find out why. And that's just totally what happened to me in my life. You know, I started eating. I started eating oil on salad. I started eating food. I started eating regular eggs, not egg whites. And... Like, lo and behold, all of a sudden, everything wasn't fine. Before OA, everything was fine. I was fine. I just had a food problem. Gosh, I'm, everything is so good. I just can't stop thinking about food, you know? But, like, that's not... So, and then after that, it's, it was just kind of like this, do the next indicated thing, you know? I had to let go of that sponsor. I had to look at why I chose that sponsor, sponsor to begin with. You know, I had to look at... You know, my relationship with sponsors in general. I always made people my higher power. I had to look at people-pleasing. I had to look at sexuality. I was out of the closet, but I wasn't in my sexuality. You know, I had to look at shopping. I had to look at my desire for material things. I had to look at money. And I had to look at my family. And I left. this is just my experience. Some people come here and they say, I came from a lovely family. And that's their experience. And that made me yours. My family was, it still is incredibly, incredibly broken and incredibly abusive and incredibly toxic. And I have a relationship with some of them and some of them I can't have a relationship with. And I still love them, you know. But I don't lie on the train tracks like I used to and then get upset when the train runs me over. That was my story. Like, oh, my God, there's a shark in the pool. Well, maybe I'll get in. Oh, my God, I don't have legs. What's going on? They bent my legs off. <laughs> like, I don't do that today. You know? Like, I have choices. I have choices. I was programmed through my family of origin. I was programmed for, you know, incredible, like, codependent, unavailable, abusive relationships. I was programmed for... Poverty, I was programmed for just drama in every area of my life. And OA has given me the tools and the format to face that stuff and not have to recreate what I was programmed for. I've had therapists tell me, you're lucky to be alive. And they're not just talking about anorexia. They, they, when I start to tell them some of the, my, the details of my story, they're like, you know, most people that go through this don't get out. They don't make it out. And I really, truly believe I made it out because of OA. And not only did I make it out, I have a really, really great life today. I have the life beyond my wildest dreams. And, um, you know, they, they used to say that it's never that we want too much, it's that we want way too little. And that really has been the experience of my life, you know. I really always wanted, I was attracted to the guys that would pencil. I had a guy, a guy once say, I'll pencil you in. I was, he's like, yeah, I'll pencil you in. I was like, okay, great. Pencil me in. Give me a call. Like, like I was, you know, I was attracted to, to just unavailability. And, like, you know, I was just so attracted to it. And I had to really walk through that, you know. And today I have a really loving, very non-dramatic, boringly non-dramatic marriage. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's abundance. Um, you know, I don't. 
I really have, but I have to say, I really have to say that the life that's beyond my wildest dreams came in packages that I wasn't expecting. That's why the third step for me is so important. And that's really what I always try to talk about when I share for a longer time is the third step. And like, you know, one of my friends I used to call back in the days of Margot, way back in the beginning, she used to talk about how, you know, we have rhinestones in our hands and they're really pretty rhinestones and we really love them and we hold on to them really, really tightly. But in order to get diamonds, we have to open our hands and let those rhinestones fall out to the ground. And that's really been my experience with the third step. I've had to really just let go of what I thought my life path was going to be. I didn't think my life path was going to be what it is today at all. You know, and the guy I married is not the guy I wrote down, you know, that I had in my mind. And the career I have is not the career I dreamed of. Well, yes and no. That's a whole other thing. But, um, but it's still not. It's not. It's not. I thought I was going to be doing X, Y, and Z by this time when I was this age. And for me, the third step, it started with letting go of control of food. It started with feeding my body. But now it's about letting go of every area of my life and really, really just that, that surrender that, I, that, that happened to me early on with food. Um, I've been able to and still work on taking to all areas of my life. And, um, and by doing that, every area of my life that I've really surrendered has just blossomed in ways that I couldn't create on my own. Just like someone said earlier, like left to my own devices, left to my isolated life, I will do what I'm hardwired for. I may not do it tomorrow, but I will end up there, you know? And, um, and I don't have to do that today, you know? I really don't have to do that. And I do want to talk a little bit more about, about anorexia and, and about what I think is really, really the core of anorexia for me and something I've really gotten in touch with the last, I would say, about seven or eight years of my life which is um, in my fourth step, um, one of my many fourth steps, but kind of my big life-changing fourth step, what I really got to was, um, I remember writing this down. I was writing about joy and happiness. I wrote, if I don't let happiness in, happiness can never be taken from me. Like, if I annihilate myself, then you can't annihilate me. If I stomp myself out, then the world can't stomp me out. And that, it's kind of like this preemptive measure. And what I really need a higher power for today, more than anything, is to let joy and pleasure and goodness in. That is really the truth for me. And if you're struggling, you know, common struggle. OA is such a safe place to struggle in. You know, I struggled so long in OA, and still some meetings I need to go in and struggle. But for me as an anorexic, the thing that makes me feel the most vulnerable, the most sort of open to attack, like the Twin Towers, like that really hit me hard because I remember the Twin Towers were the biggest buildings in New York and they were the ones that got hit. And that's what being this big anorexic in recovery feels like sometimes, like this big exposed being, you know, and nothing makes me feel more exposed than goodness and things being good, love, got some money in the bank, maybe we're about to go on a vacation. Like I start to feel really vulnerable. Over time, I've gotten a lot better with that vulnerability, and I don't sabotage it like I used to. And I, I'm learning more and more, and I think more than I ever have, I can, I can let happiness be happy, and I can let love be good and, and, and fill me up rather than something that I want to wipe out because it makes me feel too vulnerable. You know? And that, that is such a gift of this program. And I never, ever thought 
for so long. I was in so much drama, and I really thought it was just happening to me. I never knew it was my anorexia. It was, I thought anorexia, anorexia, by the way, and I should have said this at the beginning, anorexia is not about food. I don't think anorexia is a food disorder. It is a life disorder. It is not a food disorder. Food is one small part of it. I have 10 minutes. Um, I want to I wanna end so I can take a couple questions. Um, but that, that to me is so important to say. And it's this stuff. It's letting a big, beautiful life in. That is the core of my recovery from anorexia. And as long as I'm in touch with that, for the most part, I basically don't have a food issue today. I mean, every now and again it comes up. I have call, people I can call. I can write. I have tools. I have meetings. But for the most part, as I stay in touch with the issues underneath my disorder, my disorder doesn't come up. And that's, I have true freedom today. Like, that is the real deal. I'm not just saying that to get you to come back. I have freedom from food obsession 98% of the time. Body obsession, 98% of the time I'm free from. So um, this program works. It, is, it really not only saved my life, it gave me, a, like I said earlier, just a life that I could not, I didn't have the self-worth to dream about. I really didn't. I thought I wanted to be successful in this one area of my career, and, that's, and I was willing to sacrifice all other areas of my life for it. And my higher power said, no, I'm sorry, that's not good enough for you. No, sorry. Sorry, I want more for you. And I begrudgingly, kicking and screamingly, like, accepted that path. And today, I'm a lot better. Not always, but I'm a lot better at accepting my higher power's will for me. Because it always, it always ends in my heart's desire. It may not end in the picture I think it's like I think it should come in, but it does always end in me, my heart's desire, and it ends in something I never really dreamed of before, which is me knowing myself, and me being able to stand in front of people and love myself and not apologize for myself. Like that—that's the biggest gift of my recovery. I think is that I can stand in who I am without apology. I mean, I'm an anorexic. I cannot apologize for my existence. <laughs> it's a big deal for me. You guys are like, well, so what? But for me, that's like, that's a huge, huge thing. You know, I, I don't apologize for my appetites. And I don't apologize for wanting pleasure. And I don't apologize for being a human being. I do not apologize. So thank you so much for letting me share. I really, I really, I really do want to hear... Um, I want to hear your questions, if you have any. Anybody? Yes, can you talk about your experience with Step 9? Yes, I can. And I will be honest about my experience with Step 9. And this, you know, you can throw tomatoes at me later if you want. Um, so, I, as I said before, I came from alcoholism. And a big part of my disease is that apology and really feeling guilty for existing. And that was reflected in my relationships. So my first step nine was with that first sponsor. I wasn't really in touch with really the depths of anorexia. It was just about food at the time. And my first step nine was like anorexia field day. It was like driving to my hometown, which is Ojai, California, so I could get there pretty easily. And I could like confront everybody I went to grade school with and apologize for my existence. And like, I mean, I just did the whole thing. So today, um, work step nine with a sponsor. I, that's my biggest, and I was working with a sponsor, but anyway, my, what I'll say about making amends is there are times I've needed to make amends. It's more in my life today. Um, um, I was going to say that um, 
the biggest thing that I had to learn, I was really quick to say sorry and to feel where I was responsible. The hardest thing for me as a recovering anorexic and someone who grew up in alcoholism is to not take responsibility for the things that I'm not responsible for. That was really, really hard. And to really get, gee, I don't have responsibility there. That was a big, big part of my recovery. So. Yes, um, talk about your higher power and how you use that relationship to deal with challenges. Um, I really believe, I mean, I do pray and meditate a lot. Uh, I write. I'm also a real believer that because of my early experience with spirituality and anorexia, I really believe that when I connect with others, it gets me in touch with my real higher power. I really believe that. Like, yes, I pray a lot, and that's great, and I... I have a relationship with a higher power um, that is not affiliated with a religion. It's very much like my own spirituality. I'm really happy that I have that in my life. And I have a really strong relationship with a higher power. And I also need to share with other people. Like, it's not in isolation. I do meditate by myself, obviously, and I write by myself, and I do a lot of stuff by myself. But I believe that there's something about when two people come together whether it's a phone call or a meeting or a sponsor, where I can hear my higher power on such a deeper level. And I turn every area of my life over to my higher power, every single area. And just when I think there's an area that my higher power can't handle, that's the area that I really need to work on turning over. So does that answer your question? Anybody else? Um, yeah, I don't go to 10 meetings a week. No. I go to, I have a home meeting. And I try to go to one to two other meetings a week. So between two and three meetings a week are kind of a good, good thing for me now. Um, I try to meditate every day. Um, I try to make at least two to three calls a day, which I do. I'm really good at making calls. I like calling people. I like talking to people. I like sharing with people. I like having people call me and share with like. It's become now more where I tend to getting be getting calls and sharing with people. But it's the same thing. It's. Just today, I had some calls, and I told them exactly what I needed to hear, you know, and it's always what everybody says, but, so calls, and, um, yeah, just writing, meditating, two to three meetings a week, and calls, you know, sponsors, I sponsor about three people, three or four people, so, that's what it looks like. Oh, thanks for asking. My abstinence, well, I really believe in the, like, there's the food plan and there's the abstinence. I mean, my abstinence is basically I eat whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't feel guilty about eating. If I do feel guilty about eating, it's my anorexia, and I make a call, and I tell somebody I feel guilty about eating. Um, but I do have a food plan, which is I eat three meals a day as a bottom line and snacks if I need them. And there's nothing I don't eat. Um, a, a big, A big kind of food thing of recovery I can really talk about today is I really know the difference between being uncomfortable because that food makes people uncomfortable, period, and then the discomfort of anorexia. And that's a real gift of recovery. Like, if I eat that X, Y, and Z, it's not on or off my abstinence. It may make me uncomfortable, and most of the time it's not the anorexia uncomfortable. It's just, well, I'm a human being, and that food makes... Everybody uncooked. My husband ate it who doesn't have an eating disorder. It would make him uncomfortable. So I know the difference today through recovery, but there's, you know, I'm a recovering anorexic straight up. So I don't, there's no, 
my abstinences, I, I, I eat three meals a day and snacks if I need them. And I don't. When I want to start to limit my food, I know what it feels like. And I know, just like compulsive readers, when they talk about, they know when they want to take that first compulsive bite. And I know what it feels like when I want to, like, take a little bit out of my cereal bowl just because it's going to make me feel safer. I know what that feels like. And I, one day at a time, don't do that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, the thing that about my body dysmorphia, did I deal with it for the tape? Um, yes, I did. And what I've really gotten in terms of recovery from body image and body dysmorphia, you know, there's no amount of fitness that takes away me feeling gross about my body as anorexic. I mean, I, one of my incomprehensible demoralization stories was I was at the gym, and, you know, there were, the, like, these two guys I thought was, were kind of attractive, and I don't know what their deal was, but I was, like, kind of standing there, and I had these really tight shorts on, and the tops of my legs didn't touch. They were, like, this bit, this... I mean, I was emaciated. I was, like, an emaciated skeleton, and I could hear them laughing at me behind my back. And it was one of those, like, moments of just, like, oh, is this happening to me? How did I get here? And even in that, I still, it was like, it wasn't good, like, it wasn't, there's no, there's no amount of exercise, no amount of sit-ups, nothing that will take away me feeling gross about my body. I mean, I'm the guy that used to, I used to have to do 75 sit-ups before I could get into bed with my then-boyfriend when I was 23 years old. So there's no amount of exercise that takes it away. And what I've really gotten to see, I would say, in the last, like, seven or eight years again in my recovery is that... It's that thing of, like, I get to exist right now in my body as I am. And then if I'm wanting that perfect body, thank you, I'll wrap it up with this. If I want that perfect body, it's really underneath it. It's me wanting to, it's me feeling guilty for existing. That's really all it is. And to think that it's about my body, it's not about my body, it's not about exercise, it's not about weight, it's about feeling guilty for existing as I am in my real life human body. Because even when I'm in a perfect body, I still feel like I'm in a human body. It's never going to take it away. So it's about being comfortable in that human existence. Thanks for letting me share. <laughs>